Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. Today on the podcast, I've got a very exciting guest for you. I've got Dr. Jamie Seaman, and she is an obstetrician gynecologist. I always struggle with that word, I don't know why. Um, also known as Dr. Fit and Fabulous. So, Jamie, if you just want to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do day to day, and a little bit about your background, that'd be great. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, as you said, I'm a board certified OBGYN, but I have a different background than a lot of my colleagues have. So I practice medicine in Omaha, Nebraska. So right in the central United States of America in the Midwest. And I was born and raised here. I grew up as a three sport athlete and uh, played softball in college and then had a degree uh, in nutrition and exercise science before I went to medical school. And then uh, during medical school, I got pregnant with my first daughter and then I um, had two more babies in residency. And during my pregnancies, I developed pretty severe insulin resistance and low thyroid function. So after my third daughter was born, I was five years into my medical practice and I was diagnosed with prediabetes. And I had a personal tragedy happen in my life. And it was just really one of those pivotal moments in my life where I decided that I had to figure out my nutrition. I mean, here I was with a degree in nutrition, a medical degree, and I'm asking my patients to do all these things that I really wasn't willing to do for myself. And sometimes we all get stuck, you know, in, in life in survival mode. I had three little kids and a husband uh, that was working nights and weekends and holidays as a police officer. But uh, back in 2015, I set out on a very personal journey to reverse my insulin resistance and fix my thyroid function. And fast forward here to 2021, I'm in the best metabolic health I've ever been in in my entire life. And it's really transformed not only my personal life, but the way that I take care of patients. And now I'm really on a crusade to change the landscape of medicine and how we practice medicine. So that's great. You mentioned you came from a background and then worked towards something perhaps better now. So just tell us what that was. What was your nutritional background and why do you feel that you're on a better type of nutrition now? What are the differences? Well, you know, in America, about 88% of patients are, uh, have abnormal metabolic markers when we look just across the board. And uh, the unfortunate part is the culture that we live in is, you know, it, it's, it's confusing for patients because they hear on one side, they should eat a plant-based diet. And then on the next side, you know, meat is bad. Uh, fat is good. Fat is bad. Don't eat eggs. Okay. Eat lots of eggs. And it's very confusing the, the amount of information that's out there. And, you know, the, the invention of social media, I think as helpful as it is, I love my platform. I think sometimes it can, it can feed that animal a little bit too. So, you know, what really changed for me was I had to start questioning everything. You know, I looked at medicine and I said, okay, the three most common things that are going to make my patients either die or be extremely miserable in life is cancer, heart disease, and, and neurologic conditions like Alzheimer's. And at the root cause of all three of those conditions is metabolic dysfunction. So, ab, you know, abnormal cellular energy. And so I went back to my nutrition background. I started looking through the literature and I was like, I think we have this wrong. You know, we had really vilified fat in the diet. 
And what happened when we did that was food manufacturers were smart. They said, that's great. We're just going to market products as heart healthy, low in fat. But what they did is they replaced a lot of the ingredients in processed food products with sugar, flowers, and inflammatory seed oils. And these products taste good, they're very addictive, and they're quote unquote, low fat, heart healthy. The American Heart Association put their label all over it. And I realized how much money there really was in pharma and, and in medicine, unfortunately. And so, um, you know, I really think the path to better metabolic health, you know, no matter what diet you prescribe to, whether it's whole 30 or paleo or ketogenic or carnivore, even, you know, some vegetarian diets for that matter, it really comes down to eating whole foods and controlling your energy intake, whether that's fat or carbohydrates. And if you have insulin resistance, fixing that, getting your mitochondria and your cells to actually function properly. Um, it's really made me respect you know, what the fuel sources are that we put inside our body and nutrition from a medical perspective is the number one thing you can do to help so many conditions. And I'm not just talking heart disease and diabetes. I'm talking anxiety, depression, premenstrual syndromes, you know, everything that I see in women's health, PCOS, nutrition is the number one thing you can do to impact these conditions. Yeah, that's great. And obviously, it's just mostly women that you work with. I don't know if you work with any men, but obviously your title would suggest you work with mostly women. So in the things that you see with women, like, let's say, how does perhaps a, a lower carb, more nutrient dense nutrition help with things like fertility in females and, and, and ovulation, things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And women certainly are different than men. So when we look at, at, at a woman's physiology, a woman's body uh, in their years of fertility, so you know, women start menstruating in their, in their years of fertility, and during this time, the body is, is continually has these nutrient sensing pathways that are, that are asking the question, is this a good time to reproduce? And in a woman that has functional ovaries, that has cycles, um, these nutrient sensing pathways, the diet can have a profound impact on ovulation, the amount of hormone that's secreted, and then of course, what the menstrual cycle will be like or how the woman might feel. And what happens essentially is that we have about two weeks that are, that are a robust amount of estrogen production. And then after ovulation, two weeks that are predominantly progesterone. So two, there's two different hormones really at play. If a woman is not having regular menstrual cycles, that's a first big red flag that there's something off. Um, and even if you are having regular cycles, if they're abnormally heavy, if you suffer from premenstrual syndromes, um, any sort of androgenic symptoms like hair, abnormal hair growth or acne, these are all signs that there is some sort of hormonal imbalance. And the unfortunate part is women get marketed that, you know, they should just take these hormone balance supplements or, you know, they need to do X, Y, Z. And from a nutritional perspective, um, there really could be something at play. And then we could go into the whole topic of, of hormonal birth control and the things that that does. But in a woman who's not on any type of birth control, um, these nutrient sensing pathways are, are, are extremely important. And our sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone are literally made from fat. They're made from cholesterol. All of these hormones are made from cholesterol. And so when you start re restricting dietary fat, or if a woman is at a low body fat, we're at risk of not even producing these hormones. 
And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, if we're very obese or we're eating a, a very nutrient um, uh, in a surplus, you know, caloric surplus, then we could have too many of these hormones. So we're always having to find that balance. The body is always trying to find homeostasis, which means basically kind of on a balance beam, right? You can't tip it one way too far or the other, you'll fall over. And so the body's always trying to find that homeostasis, but unfortunately we're jumping on one end of the seesaw most of the time. Yeah, that's great. I like the way you, you said it like that on one end, perhaps you're having too much energy, energy dense food and you're not getting the nutrients from it. And then on the other end, you could be in a calorie deficit and doing harm that way. So um, you touched a little bit on the birth control there. Let's dive into the, the birth control because I know um, people are scared of the androgen ones and there's all sorts of different kind of birth control out there nowadays. Can birth control um, affect a female's fertility and ovulation? And also when on birth control, do, does that affect a woman's period like, like it's commonly known that it perhaps does? Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. So first of all, you know, working in women's health, birth control is great because about 50% of the pregnancies that we see are unplanned. So, you know, birth, the invention of birth control was a great thing for women because it has allowed them to plan pregnancies and to, uh, to, you know, to enter the workforce and, and that's great, but it doesn't come with, with downstream effects. And so let's, when we're talking about birth control, we really need to be, we need to know which one we're talking about because they all affect a woman's body different. So the first category, let's talk about combined contraceptives that contain both estrogen and progesterone. And these would be a pill that you take orally, or there is a patch that goes on the skin or there's a vaginal ring um, that can be placed vaginally. These types of birth control shut off the system. So you're not really actually having periods on these forms of birth control. And that's a huge misconception. Uh, girls and women all the time think that they have periods on a birth control pill and you really don't. Um, the manufacturers, the pharmaceutical manufacturers thought women would want to feel normal by having some bleeding every month. And, and that's, that's really not what's happening. It's basically turning off the hard drive and preventing you from ovulating. So if you're on this type of contraception, you have a very steady state of hormone as long as you continue to take the medication. The unfortunate part of that is that when you take exogenous, meaning from outside the body, when you take exogenous hormones, they increase a protein called sex hormone binding globulin, which can bind up things like your free testosterone. It can have an effect on your free thyroid function because it can in increase thyroid binding globulin. And then long-term use can cause nutrient deficiencies. So it, it can deplete your body of the B vitamins, zinc, selenium, magnesium. So depending how long a woman has been on this type of therapy, there can be micronutrient depletions and that can lead to a variety of symptoms um, while women take these. Certainly a nutrient dense diet um, would combat a lot of this. And, uh, but the unfortunate part is many women are eating well and then they get put on this to try to quote unquote, fix the problem. <laughs> and all it does is exacerbate it. And then when they come off of the medication they still never fixed the problem. And now, now they're going to suffer more or you know, uh, be, have problems with infertility. So that's kind of the, the problem with those types. Now, if we move to something like a progesterone only birth control, which can be given orally, it can be given, um, uh, there's a implantable devices that go in the arm inside the uterus. There's all sorts of progesterone only forms. These don't contain estrogen, um, 
which is a good thing uh, because there's some people that cannot take estrogen or um, it, they do tend to come with less side effects. But depending what progesterone is in there, there's lots of synthetic forms. Um, they can have side effects as well. They can cause problems with hair. They can cause problems with acne. Um, certain forms we see um, dysregulation um, with weight and weight gain. But once again, a nutrient-dense diet could combat these things, but you always have to know, you know uh, what you're dealing with. And then there is a non-hormonal form of birth control that is a copper um, implantable device, but copper competes for zinc in the body. So if you're using this form, then you, you need to understand how copper and zinc um, are absorbed and, and utilized on a cellular level. So birth control is great, but unfortunately, um, we don't have time to go you know, take this deep of a dive a lot of time with patients. And so... Uh, people really need to understand what they're taking and, and what those downstream effects are. And once again, birth control is literally to prevent pregnancy. Birth control is not to help your bad period or your menstrual cramps or, or whatever it is. Um, they're great tools sometimes when we really do need them. But um, if you don't actually need birth control, um, you should look at other ways to, to fix dysregulated hormones and cycles through nutrition, stress reduction, sleep movement and reducing environmental toxins yeah that's great i mean it's so unfortunate that doctors and and uh, pharmacies and things like that don't actually say to women that going on birth control could deplete your system you know saying that having these uh, pills or, or implants or, or whatever they're having then they should really say to them look this is what could happen you know yes all right birth control it does have its place but you need to also then realize what's going on with your body I mean I'm sure there's plenty of women out there not actually realizing what you just said that they're not having their period it's just the birth control pill just having a break and then your body uh, reacting to it so I mean that is something that's I didn't know before you said it. And I'm sure a lot of women out there don't know that either. They really need to be told this. And thinking about nutrition, like you said, all the way through there, if you can have a nutrient dense nutrition and make sure you're getting all those vitamins and minerals, then that's going to help you through the process. And I think that information needs to be put out there a lot more. And so leading on from that, then when women say come off birth control and look towards uh, wanting to get pregnant and things like that, then how come some women report then they, that they have irregular cycles or they can't work out when they're ovulating. Has the birth control has something to do with that or is that their body trying to get back to normal? So when we look at um, rates of ovulation when women come off of, of different contraceptives, usually the birth control pill tends to be the worst offender. Sometimes it can take usually a couple of cycles for ovulation to return or Depo-Provera, which is the injectable progestin. But within a few months, a woman should be cycling normally. And when they're not, it's typically because they probably weren't, they probably had a problem before they ever went on birth control in the first place and they never fixed it. Um, but it, it certainly could be from micronutrient depletions from being on the medicine, um, suboptimal thyroid function, um, you know, or metabolic disease. And so if a woman is wanting to, um, get pregnant or be in the best health, you know, from a fertility standpoint, um, then we need to look at the diet, nutrient dense foods. And for most women, um, women tend to under eat protein. Um, and, uh, that's a super important macronutrient in the diet. And then the second most important is fat. Um, like I said, our sex hormones are made from fat. 
um, are fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. Um, you need to consume fat to absorb those uh, vitamins. And carbohydrates are, are definitely abused in, in our food system. I am not saying carbohydrates are bad. Um, you know, for insulin sensitive people, I think there are people that can eat a high carb, moderate fat diet and have good metabolic health. Um, but what, what the problem is, is that most foods that come in a bag or a box or a jar are typically going to have additives, um, including sugar, flours, and inflammatory vegetable oils. Yeah, that's great. That's absolutely great. It's working out your nutrition, making sure that you've got all that together, focusing on real foods, because real foods are the things that are going to give you the nutrient density and going to give you the vitamins and the minerals that you need. So leading yeah. on from that, sorry. It women either. When we look at, you know, when I deal with couples that are suffering from infertility, about 50% of the time we have an abnormal semen analysis in the partner. And, you know, what men need to understand is that spermatogenesis happens a lot quicker. Um, a woman is actually born with all the eggs she'll ever have in her entire lifetime. And so, uh, but a man has spermatogenesis, turns over sperm a lot uh, quicker. And so from a, from a nutritional standpoint, uh, men need B vitamins, they need zinc, um, they need healthy fat and nutrients in their diets as well. Um, and that, that can have a profound impact on uh, sperm production. And I will tell you that every year that has gone by while I've been in medical practice, I'm seeing more and more and more abnormal sperm production. And, um, and it's a huge problem. A lot of times it's actually not the female, but uh, the male partner. Yeah, that's great. And please, you said that because there is a lot of infertility about, and it's not just the female, it's the male as well. And that can be aimed at nutrition there too, and insulin resistance, making sure that you're getting away from insulin resistance, looking to refine your nutrition, refine your lifestyle, make sure you're more insulin sensitive, and then fertility could be a thing in the past for you. So that's great. And please, you said that. But leading on from birth control and leading on from um, that, then we turn into pregnancy and women in pregnancy. Now, I've seen a lot of, about keto in pregnancy. Is it safe? Is it not safe? Is low carb safe? Is it not safe? And you often hear from people on the street that you need to he eat twice as much if you're pregnant because you're feeding something inside of you. Now, I know that's a bit of a misnomer there, but perhaps you do need to have more, but maybe more nutrient dense food, maybe more vitamins and minerals inside you to support your pregnancy. But where does carbohydrates play its role in this? Yeah, that's a great question. So when, when you are building another human, you do need more nutrients and, um, and you need more building blocks. And so when we look from a, from a macronutrient standpoint um, for, you know, extra calories, you need some extra calories for, for the baby. And then also because the, the mom's body is, is literally growing as well. The, the uterus is, is going through hypertrophy. The breasts are, are growing as well. But when we look at caloric needs, they're not, they're not double. <laughs> in the first trimester, you know, they may be in the range of, of 100 to, you know, 200 additional calories, which is like an extra snack. Uh, and in the third trimester, you know, maybe upwards of 300 by some studies. During lactation, you, you need about 500. So you do need more calories for breastfeeding than you do during pregnancy. But you hit on a key point is that you need more micronutrients. And so you can eat an additional 300 calories, but if it's 300 calories devoid of, of a lot of those important nutrients, then you're not, really, you're not really giving any benefit to the pregnancy. And the baby uh, 
you could think of it almost like a parasite that it will take what it needs from the mom's body. So if it needs to start uh, resorbing bone calcium or, or nutrients or protein for that matter, um, it will take it, you know, at the cost of the maternal health. And the physiology in pregnancy changes too. Pregnancy is a insulin resistant state. And that is because that is nature's way of ensuring that there is a flow of fat substrates and glucose and carb substrates going to the baby. And so in pregnancy, if you abuse carbohydrates, it increases the, the uh, amount of insulin that your body secretes, which it's already secreting about 30% more than it does outside of pregnancy. Uh, but what that does is that uh, that increases risk, not only for the mom, um, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, excessive weight gain, um, but it increases lifelong risks for the offspring. So the baby not only can have problems with blood sugar and insulin control at birth, um, electrolyte disturbances, higher NICU admission rates, um, decrease in lung maturity and uh, birth defects. But long-term, we know that moms that have to secrete more insulin to make their blood sugars normal in pregnancy, their babies have a, a increased risk of obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease in their lifetime. So during pregnancy, you're not only growing a human, but you're influencing your baby's DNA. That's called epigenetics. And so nutrition and pregnancy is very important and it is not as simple as just eating a little bit more. What you eat is way more important. So could you say then that that will lead to, because we see nowadays a lot of premature births, a lot of um, cesareans, things like that. My wife herself had to have a cesarean with our little boy. Um, could that have been down to perhaps the nutrition wasn't nutrient dense enough? It didn't have enough support for the baby to grow as it should have been growing inside of her. You know, I think, I think a lot of our modern obstetric uh, complications in pregnancy are certainly due to the fact that our patient population is more metabolically unhealthy. So, you know, the fact that we see more diabetes, more preeclampsia. But when we look from an evolutionary perspective, when, when humans started to develop bigger brains, and that was actually when we started eating more nutrient-dense animal foods, our brains got bit, right? Our brain loves that fat, and, and it's same for, same for a human baby. Um, it's very interesting to, to look at um, the evolution of the maternal body when we became, became upright because uh, a baby's head is the largest part that has to fit you know, through a birth canal. And so it's, it's kind of a, of course, a million dollar question is why are the cesarean section rates so much higher now than they were you know, 100 years ago? Um, well, certainly with the invention of modern medicine and, and the cesarean section, that's great. We've been able to deliver babies that would have otherwise possibly died you know, during childbirth. And so um, you know, we're, we're taking babies out that maybe wouldn't have ever fit, right? So you're, you're playing with nature a little bit there. Um, but the biggest thing uh, is that in America in particular, certainly patients are unhealthy. Um, babies are a lot larger now than they used to be um, due to poor diet and pregnancy. The, the uh, average birth weight has gone up um, over the last uh, few decades. And, um, and unfortunately, in smaller towns, I live in a pretty large city within my state, but in smaller towns, um, there's less access to, to um, 
uh, allow women to try vaginal births after C-section. And so there's a lot of women that once they've had a C-section, they have uh, more. And there's um, less education with operative vaginal delivery. So, you know, helping a mom deliver a baby with use of like forceps, uh, for instance, um, which I do in my practice. So it's hard, it's hard to say, and it's such an individualized thing, but I do think the fact that we have a, a patient population that's, that's less metabolically healthy certainly has contributed to the, to the rate of cesarean section. Yeah, I think like you say, to improve your chances, improve your chances of having a vaginal birth, then make sure you are metabolically stable, make sure that you're getting in all those nutrients, make sure you're feeding your baby what it needs. And then obviously there's still going to be factors, but it will improve your chances if you are metabolically healthy yourself. Yes, absolutely. So um, something that a lot of women I've spoke to say during I do work with some athletes sometimes I work with a general public and something I hear from the the women a lot is they crave carbohydrates especially if they're doing more of a, a lower carb style uh, nutrition they crave carbohydrates at certain points in the month and it tends to be either just before their period or just at the end of their period could you perhaps enlighten us as to why that is yeah so women actually have different physiologic states in the first two weeks of the menstrual cycle compared to the second two weeks. And what you're describing is that time period, those 10 to 14 days prior to the, the menstrual cycle starting, where women start to have more blood sugar dysregulation and more cravings, more water retention. Um, they don't recover well from training. And that's because that is a high progesterone phase. And the body, what the body is doing is it's, it's preparing for a possible pregnancy. So it's retaining some fluids, it's increasing maternal appetite. There's a little more blood sugar dysregulation because it's preparing for a possible pregnancy. Most women don't want to get pregnant every single month. So unfortunately, uh, if you're menstruating, that, that is, that's just an unfortunate truth is that, you know, two weeks of every month, you're going to have to, to endure this. Now, um, this is typically when women, uh, because of the blood sugar dysregulation, have a lot, you know, they have cravings for, for sugar and chocolate or, or just carbohydrates in general. Um, certainly this would be an okay time, um, you know, to possibly modify the training regimen because in the first two weeks, uh, you would do great with like high intensity interval training, but in those second two weeks, something that's more low intensity um, would be more helpful. Um, and from a dietary perspective, certainly, you know, you could modify, you know, a little bit during, during that phase, but women certainly have to be very in tune with their body and know where they're at in the cycle because women have a, a very, very much an emotional attachment with food as well. And so we need to understand, is this because we have neurotransmitter imbalances? You know, a lot of our neurotransmitters are made from protein. And so women eating protein deficient diets can have problems with serotonin and dopamine production. So, you know, it's very individualized, but they're, they're not crazy. There, there really is a physiologic reason why we feel these things uh, prior to the menstrual period. Yeah, us, uh, us men have it easy, really, don't we, when you think about it like that. <laughs> but uh, also on that particular subject, some people say that they'll have a strict 28 days ovulation, uh, you know, menstrual cycle, strict 28 days, that's it. They know exactly what's going on. But then others will say, even though they're on a nutrient dense nutrition, even though they're perhaps they've perhaps been on low carb for a while, their their days are, are still a bit mixed up, and that they they would 
really like it to be on the dot every month. But is there anything that, that those can be, people can do to help to get a more regular cycle? Or is it just that some people are different than others? Yeah. So what we consider um, to be a normal menstrual cycle, for some women, it could be as short as 25 to 26 days. And for some women, it could be longer, even 32 up to 35 days, we would be considered normal as long as it's coming at that regular interval. Um, from month to month, it may fluctuate usually only by a day or two. Um, if you're having, you know, regulation that's between, oh, it's two weeks, then it's six weeks, then it's two weeks, then it's four weeks. If it's that dysregulated, um, then more likely than not, you're, you're missing ovulatory windows. So you're not ovulating regularly. Typically with normal, regular ovulation, it will be usually within a day or two every single month. Um, now, sometimes the cycle will shorten or lengthen. Um, just based on those nutrient sensing pathways, maybe what's going on with your body composition. I've certainly noticed in my own body, as my body fat drops, as I become leaner, my cycles become shorter due to the less estrogen production. Uh, but most people usually are, are within a day or two. And I think also um, it's important to say that there could be other factors maybe at play, like not just the nutrition, people who say, oh, yeah, but I'm on the low carb nutrition, so I'm expecting my cycle to be right. But then you've got to look at it perhaps as a whole lifestyle and say, how is your sleep? How is your stress? Things like that could affect it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when you get stressed um, and you secrete excessive amounts of, of uh, cortisol and, and adrenaline and norepinephrine and these things, all of these things can affect your hormones. And so you're absolutely right. It's not just nutrition. It's how you're moving, how you're training. Are you recovering? Are you balancing recovery with training, sleeping stress? Absolutely. Those things all have an effect. I know sleep's a big one. And uh, like I say, I've got a one-year-old child. So sometimes sleep is a little bit difficult. I know yourself, you've got some children. Was it three daughters you got? Three daughters? Yeah, yeah three daughters, yeah. Very soon to be turning uh, six, eight, and 10. Oh, I, great, great. Years are hard when they're little. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So are your, do you try and focus your nutrition and put it across to your children then as well? Obviously, I want my little boy to grow up and, and know all the science there is. And then perhaps it's his choice what he wants to do. But do you try and show them the science? Do you try and show them what your body can do if it's given the right things to, to work with? Yeah. So my girls, um, when, you know, when I first started this journey, um, you know, back in 2015, they were still pretty little. Um, but I'll be the first to admit as a mother that, you know, I was cooking myself healthy meals and then feeding them whatever they would eat. Cause I think as a mom, you know, you just want your kids to, to eat and not complain. And, um, and you're always trying to please them. Right. Um, and so how we kind of have approached nutrition, our kids, really, for the most part, eat what we eat, you know, you don't need your kids don't need, they need exactly what you need. Um, and sometimes even more of it, you know, for their growing and developing bodies. But we don't run a dictatorship in our house, we know that they're children, and they might want to have a piece of birthday cake or something like that. How we approach it in our house is, is really through education, we talk about you know, where foods come from, what they do inside our body, how they make us feel. And our goal is to really just educate our girls on that because we know that at some point they're going to leave our house and, and make their own decisions. And, um, and we want them to be able to make them for their, you know, for themselves. And so, uh, and I also think that I, I was very surprised when we really transitioned their diet to nutrient dense animal foods mostly 
um, that uh, they do eat those things. I think we project, you know, things onto our children like, oh, they won't like salmon or they won't like, you know, this vegetable or whatever. And um, they'll surprise you sometimes. They certainly, we have three girls and they all have, you know, little nuances and, and one likes berries and one likes steak. And, you know, they, they have their favorites for sure. But I think it's important to educate your children because uh, they don't do a lot of that education in our school systems and, and the education they do is, is from government nutritional recommendations. And if anybody saw the new United States dietary guidelines, they're, they're pathetic. <laughs> So yeah, well, the ones in the UK are not much better. So yeah, you have to do a lot of education at your own dinner table. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think like you say, leading by example as well, that they'll eat what you eat. So if you lead by example, then you're hopefully helping them with that too and giving them all the education you can. So that's great. And um, so you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about um, protein. And if I mention protein sometimes to, to the women, they're like, oh, no, I, I don't want to get muscles. You know, I don't want to be big and I, I don't want to eat too much protein and all this. But why is protein so important? And why is going along with protein perhaps strength training important too? Why do we need these strong muscles? Women as well. I mean, you touched on the fact that I think from a social, cultural, you know, view, um, women, um, have been shown images that they should be thin and lean and and they don't they shouldn't have big muscles that's very masculine um, but the unfortunate truth is that muscle you know really is an organ of longevity when we look at you know battling against your risks as a as an older person things like heart disease and diabetes and, and osteoporosis having muscle puts you at an advantage and to not only maintain your lean body mass, but to grow your lean body mass. And you can at any age, even if you're in your 80s, um, you need to have adequate amino acids. You need to have adequate stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. And then you need to put a stress on the muscle. So you need to have your brain tell your bicep that you still need it through resistance training. And so our bones and our muscles need resistance training. And women chronically tend to undereat protein. And um, you need to be eating about 30 grams of protein at least three times a day, or at least two meals with about 45 to 50 grams. And that's not that hard if you're eating nutrient-dense animal foods, but that's, that's truly what women need. And then as we get older, we become less efficient at digestion of protein and utilization of amino acids. So as you get older, and uh, you actually need more protein. So if you're not good at eating it, good at eating it at 20 or 30, you're really going to struggle when you when you get through menopause as a woman. Yeah, and going along with that, the the strength training is really really important. You need to, like you say, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. So really, even if you're an athlete doing um, cardio activity, you know perhaps change a bit of that cardio activity into strength because for one it's going to benefit your cardio activity and two once your cardio activity stops you're perhaps not going to be able to do your cardio activity all the way through your life once that stops then you've still got that strength to help you through your later years as you grow older yeah from a cardiovascular perspective low intensity exercise even just like walking um is going to give you cardiovascular uh, benefit um if you, if you really want to help your cardiovascular system, then doing a shorter amount of time, like not going on the, you know, elliptical for an hour, but doing some high intensity interval training for 10, 15, 20 minutes is going to give you, you know, good, good metabolic effect. But 
resistance training. I mean, I don't know if you've ever lift weights really hard, but you get out of breath and you get sweaty. <laughs> and so it's absolutely easy to incorporate, um, you know, resistance training, get off your cell phone in the gym and do it on a timer, you know, on a clock, and you're going to get great cardiovascular benefit doing resistance training. And so I always tell women, if you only have 20 or 30 minutes to work out or go to the gym, you're going to get more bang for your buck doing resistance training than you are just getting on some sort of cardio equipment for 30 minutes and going mindlessly through the motions. Yeah, that's great. I'm pleased you touched on that because I've found it hard sometimes to get that across to, to people, especially women. That is working that much harder. That is being able to build it, being able to make sure. And also you're building all the mitochondria in your muscles and, and, and like that, as opposed to a slow zone to run, let's say something in the gym could be more effective. And that's a bit of a controversial thing to say. If you're talking to, to an athlete, it obviously depends on specifics and what you're training for. But something in the gym like that, high short burst, high intensity could be more helpful to your muscles and to your cardiovascular system than a slow jog. I'm really pleased that you, that you said Yeah. And most women, you know, are doing cardiovascular exercise to try to lose weight. And when we look long-term cardio, you know, cardiovascular exercise doesn't really help with long-term weight control. It actually makes them more hungry. They tend to eat more because they just ran a couple, you know, miles, kilometers. And so from a, from a perspective of, you know, I want to maintain my weight, building muscle is going to help you uh, do that a lot faster. I tell people fat is lost in the kitchen, muscle is gained in the gym. So um, do women tend to adapt to diet different to men then? Like, let's say if I was to subscribe a keto diet to a woman tomorrow and, and to a man at the same time, then is it individual? Does it not matter on your gender? Or do women tend to slowly adapt and men tend to adapt a lot quicker? Well, uh, certainly there are differences between, between men and, and women when it comes to weight loss. A woman's body is uh, more in tune with reproduction. And so it will fight tooth and nail <laughs> to lose weight because it's a protective mechanism to have extra body fat because there could be a period of famine or starvation that's coming. And so, you know, if we just go, you know, pound for pound, men tend to lose weight, you know, a little bit easier. Um, now, with that being said, there definitely are, you know, genetic influences. I carry a lot of insulin resistant genes. And so it's easier for me to lose weight, you know, reducing carbohydrate intake. There could be another woman that's, you know, completely opposite. It's certainly individualized. And so I always tell people, be your own expert. I think the reason why I find so much success in my practice with people limiting carbohydrates is that when they eat adequate protein and fat, those normal satiety mechanisms are there. Women, um, once I, you know, I, I keyed in on this earlier, they're very emotionally attached to food. And so when you can provide a woman with satiety where she's not hungry all the time and having cravings all the time, it makes them more compliant with lifestyle changes. And the only thing that will work long-term is something that's sustainable. You can't go on some you know, radical diet. Those things are not sustainable long-term. And a very low calorie diet, let's just tell people, well, just eat less, eat less and move more. A very low calorie diet will ruin your normal satiety me mechanisms for up to two years after you go back to maintenance. And so you'll be extra hungry for two years. That's why people, you know, lose 40 pounds and then regain it. That's why it happens all the time. And so the ketogenic diet, low carb diets, it's not about weight loss. It's about 
resetting their satiety mechanisms. It's about the anti-inflammatory effects. It's about the fact that it forces them to eat more fat and protein, things their brain needs and wants, their cells want, their mitochondria want. So it's not just about, just about the calories. Yeah, that's a great way to put it because there is all these camps out there now. There is the keto camp and the carnivore camp and the paleo, whole 30, whatever you want to go in. And people kind of blindly go into those in a way. Whereas when you say it like that, all you have to do is focus more on protein and nutrient dense foods, then you will naturally find yourself on a lower carb style of nutrition. You don't have to go out there and buy every keto book there is and really research and look into how, what you need and how you need to do it. All you need to do is focus on those nutrient dense food, focus on the protein, and then your body will take control. Your body will tell you, okay, thank you very much for that. We're happy. We don't need to go out there on and get all that processed food and all that junk because it's not what my, my body wants. Yes, a hundred percent. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolutely amazing talk and I've learned some things along the way as well. I know you're um, going for Mrs. America, are you, this year when it goes ahead? So good luck with that. And uh, tell people where they can follow you and, and follow along with everything that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I have a website, drfitandfabulous.com. You can also find me on social media, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, um, Dr. Fit and Fabulous. So yeah, I'm super excited for Mrs. America and, um, and uh, we'll see if, uh, if it turns into Mrs. World. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, keep up the good work you're doing. You're doing absolutely amazing. And I, I follow along all the time and follow everything you're doing. And it's really, really good to see people like yourself putting things out there and helping, helping everybody and helping especially women make uh, sense of all the confusion. Yes, I appreciate you helping spread the message. A great opportunity there to speak to Dr. Jamie and throw over to some women-specific guidance. But whatever gender you are, the foundations to all things remain the same. It comes back to having that nutrient-packed, protein-rich, real food nutrition. And building yourself a stress-free lifestyle too. Perhaps that's more importantly for women and their unique bodies. For more info, go follow Jamie at Dr. Fit and Fabulous. She really does put out some great content, specifically for, not just specifically for women, for men too. So go check her out. And if you're enjoying these podcasts, remember to leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Check out more of our services at humannutritionlifestyle.com. And finally, it's nice to see the days are starting to get a little bit longer. So go out there, get some sun, be happy, be safe, and I'll see you next time.